Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Epic. So glad you're with us. If you're new, my name is Trent. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And today we are in part three of a series called Transformed. And this series is based upon one verse in the Bible. So I just want to find out, does anybody know what that one verse is? What Romans 12, two, way to go. Good job, good job. All right, so it's based on Romans uh, chapter 12, verse two. And what we hope that you'll do in this series is we hope that you'll memorize that verse. Now, does anybody struggle with like memorizing things? Yeah, we all do. That's why we have a seven week series where we can take seven weeks together to memorize one verse out of the Bible. All right, so uh, Romans chapter 12, verse two, we actually have Bible memory cards that we're gonna give you on your way out. So on your way out, somebody will just hand you a card. I encourage you to put that somewhere that'll help you remember. And you can read through that verse on a regular basis, maybe in your bathroom, you know, if you spend a lot of time, you know, trying to get your hair as nice as mine, maybe you need it on your mirror. Um, maybe, I was going to say driving, said that in the first service, but driving may not be the best thing. We don't want you to be distracted. I'm sorry, officer, I ran into that other car because I was trying to memorize a Bible verse, so that wouldn't be good. So maybe put it at work or somewhere where you can see it and spend time memorizing it. So we're going to start today by quoting this verse out loud together. So it's going to come up on the screens. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. All right, so ready on the count of three. One, two, three. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Anybody ever interested in knowing God's will for them? Yep, like many of us, that verse talks about it. And it tells us how we can learn God's will. It starts with transforming our minds. Now, we learned in this series that that word transformation that we get comes from the word that we also use for metamorphosis. And metamorphosis does not just mean for something to change slightly. It means a total transformation of one thing into a new thing. And we see that when we see caterpillars become butterflies. We got a brand new thing going on here. And the apostle Paul who wrote this verse says, God wants to transform you into a new person. And he starts by working on what? What's that verse? Our minds. Yeah. He starts by working here because when God can transform how we think, he can transform our hearts and he can transform our behavior. So all transformation starts in our minds. We talked last week about transforming our relationships And I ask you to chew on this question all week. What relationship needs to be transformed in your life? Or how do your relationships need to be transformed? Hopefully you've chewed on that. Hopefully you've identified maybe a few of your relationships that that need to see transformation. And hopefully you'll allow God to transform those relationships. Now today we're going to talk about transforming our hope. So not only does God want to transform our minds... He wants to transform our relationships, but he wants to transform what we put our hope in. So to set up what we're going to talk about today, I'm going to tell you a story that goes back 20 years ago this year. So 20 years ago, I took a job in Virginia at a university. So I was married at the time, had two young kids, and so I moved my young family 
to Virginia, to this university where I was going to be a resident assistant. And we were a resident director. And we were the, the little family on campus that all the students were like, why are you here? We lived on campus. We had a little apartment in the dorm. And we would take our mound of laundry and our little wagon that our kids had, and we would take it down to the laundry mat at this campus, and we would take up 10 washers and 10 dryers. And the poor students were like, darn it, I didn't beat the little family that came in today. I'll never get my laundry done. So I was a resident director, and I worked with 10 resident assistants. So they were student leaders, and they lived on their dorms. And so I was in charge of them and the students that they were responsible for. So three, 400 students, something like that. When I first took the job, I thought, you know what? These guys don't know me, and I don't know them. So we need to go do something together that will build a community that will help us get to know each other and just have a great memory that, that we will look back upon for a long time in our lives. So I decided I was going to take them to some iron mines that my wife and I and some of our friends had explored when we were there uh, working on our undergraduate degree. So I'm going to show you some pictures that are going to kind of walk through this story. So to find these iron mines, we live close to the Blue Ridge Parkway, and it, like, there's no real directions. Like you hit the parkway, you go left, you look for that sign. When you see that sign, then you pull over. There's a little overlook, and you pull over, and you'll look around and be like, I don't see anything. Yep, it's not there. It's down in the bottom of the valley. So you got to go back up past that sign, find the next ridge, go down into the bottom of the valley. And we're talking a steep decline where you're going from tree to tree to tree to keep you from falling down and smashing your face on all the rocks that you're trying to avoid as well. So like a big adventure. So we get down to the bottom, and then you'll turn around, and you'll notice... When you look back up at the mountain you've just climbed down, there are these holes. So there, there are these holes like this. It's an entrance to one of the iron mines. And you see the railroad tracks there where they would um, bring out the, the iron ore in uh, like railroad cars and uh, take that to the, to the rail station and take it wherever they're taking it. So you see stuff like that. And the next picture, when you get inside you see stuff like this. So the old railroad tracks, and you see you know, the shafts that have been um, blown up through dynamite as they're making horizontal shafts or vertical shafts. So just kind of a cool experience for us guys as we're becoming a band of brothers together that day. So I b brought a rope with me, thinking we may need that rope to kind of scale some of the stuff. So some of the shafts were... Um, What's this way? Horizontal. Sorry, I lost my, lost my train of thought there. So some of them were horizontal. Some of them were vertical. Some of them were very small. We had to squeeze through a little spot, and it was pitch black in there. We're talking no light other than our flashlights. And so we were really glad that the bears and the bats and the snakes were not home when we did that. So we're climbing through this, this, um, all these different shafts, and we get to a spot where I know, because my wife and I and our friends had been there before, I knew we either go forward and don't come back, or we go back now. Like, there's no way. We like either have to commit, and we're going to go forward, and we're going to find a way to get out up top, or we're going to go back to the entrance. And, you know, being the bonehead guy that I am, I'm like, let's go forward. So we went forward. We got to this final shaft that we were walking out. It was a horizontal shaft, and the exit was above us straight ahead. There was one thing standing between us, and it was a huge shaft that went down 100 feet or something. I'm not sure. We you know, put our flashlights down there. Couldn't quite tell what was down there. Might have gone to the abyss, hell maybe. I don't know. Not sure. It was a long way down. 
So to get from where we were to the exit ledge, we had to scale the side of this wall and get out. Now I'm standing there thinking, this is stupid, this is stupid, this is stupid. No, I'm stupid, I'm stupid. I brought us guys here and I'm gonna have to like go home and tell one of their parents, I'm sorry, like I killed your kid on a team building experience. Or they're gonna go home and tell my wife, sorry, you're a widow in your early 20s because your husband is stupid. So I'm like, this is not my best moment here. You know, I probably didn't think through this very well. So I'm the guy who got us in the spot. So I'm the guy who's got to get us out. So I'm going to have to crawl across this, uh, this rock face, get on the ledge, and then use the rope to help everybody get across. Um, so we decided with the rope, we're going to tie it around my waist, just in case they needed to pull me up from my death, you know, so they have my body at least. So I'm like, okay, that's a good idea. And they said, listen, like if you fall, we'll pull real hard. Oh, great. Uh, great. I feel really good about that. That's awesome. So we tied around my waist and I'm like analyzing mentally where I'm going to go. I got to put my foot there. I got to put my hand there. And then I'm going to swing out and I've got to commit to this thing. There's no like, hey, I'm partially doing this. Like I'm out there and we're, we're going to go. So I notice that there is a rusty piece of metal sticking out at just the right spot. I mean, it's a perfect spot for me to reach out and grab. I'm like, that's it. Foot, hand, I'm swinging out, grabbing that. I'm just a few feet away from the ledge, and I'll be up on the ledge, and we'll pull these guys out. It's going to be awesome. I mean, a rusty piece of metal has been there for the past 100 years. It's not going to come out of the wall, right? So I put my foot, I grabbed, I swung, and I pulled it out of the wall. Now, I'm not sure how I made it from there back to the ledge, like, like, as I look back, no idea. Did my guys pull me? I don't know. Did an angel flutter me there? I don't know. I'm not sure. I talked with Tim Jones, our executive pastor. He was actually there. He was one of my RAs. And he said, Trent, what happened was we pulled you back because you were going to your death. So they pulled me back, and I'm standing back on the ledge with the guys, and I'm like petrified at this point. I'm, my heart's going crazy. My hand's shaking. My guys, like I almost died. This is horrible. So one of our brave guys found another shaft, and he shimmied up that shaft, used the rope, pulled us all up. We got out, and end of wonderful story. We're alive today. I'm grateful. Now, here's the point of, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks for applauding my stupidity. So long story for a small point. The point is, I put all my hope in a rusty piece of metal that let me down. It really almost led to my death. And people do that all the time. All the time. We put our hope in things that will never lead to eternal life. And we hold on to it thinking this is going to be the thing. And it's not the thing. So we're going to talk today about four different Bible stories where people put their hope in the wrong thing. And then Jesus is going to tell us what we should put our hope in that will lead to eternal life. Now, if you are a note taker, I encourage you to take notes. And we've got a way that you can do that. On your seat should have been a copy of our spiritual growth challenge. Are those out there? So if you, you need one, there's more at our Connection Center that you can grab. There's some pins around you as well. There's some extra ones up front if you need one. Um, but I recommend, even if you aren't a note taker, I highly recommend taking notes, especially during this series. Because in this series, what we're trying to get everybody in is one of our transformed small groups. 
We'd love for you to be in one of our transformed groups. It's a five-week group experience. It's going to start this week. And uh, it's an opportunity for us to talk more about what we're talking about on Sundays. And you'll notice if you look at that under the gather section on the front of that page, we've got some small group questions. Those are the questions that the groups will be working their way through. So you already know the questions that you might be asked. And if you take notes on the back, then you'll be able to participate in the group based upon your experience and how um, you've experienced these questions. And so I highly recommend you take some notes, especially today as we're jumping through four different Bible stories. So today we're going to start with, the first story we're going to look at is the Old Testament version of Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) Who are we talking about? Samson. Samson. Yep, we're talking about the Old Testament character of Samson lived before the time of Jesus in the time that was known as the Judges. So Samson was one of the judges for the Israelites. So let me tell you about his story. So God showed up one day to his parents and said, hey, listen, you're going to have a kid, and this is going to be a special young boy. Um, He's going to be used by me to free the nation of Israel from their enemies, the Philistines. But here's what I want you to know. There are certain things that Samson can do, certain things that Samson can't do. He's supposed to be set apart. So I want you to set him apart. And his strength that he's going to have, he's going to have this amazing strength. His strength is going to be tied to his hair. So don't cut his hair. I'm like super sad when I think about that story. I'm like, really? Like, just can't have Samson's strength, apparently. So Samson was born. His hair starts growing. His strength starts developing. And he becomes this, this young man who's got amazing strength. And we're talking more strength than we can really comprehend. In one encounter with the Philistines, he killed a thousand of his counterparts with a jawbone of a donkey. Amazing experience. Um, He took the city gates, which were huge city gates. He lifted them up, put them on his back, and took them up to a hill and dropped them off. So this guy had some amazing strength. Now, he had a problem, an ego problem. He knew he was strong, and it went to his head. And he put all of his hope in his physical strength and in relationships that brought him pleasure. So listen to Judges chapter 14, which summarizes Samson's ego problem. Verse 1 says, One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her, so go get her for me. Now, doesn't that sound like a super spiritual guy that God wants to use to free the nation of Israel? You know, a guy that's been set apart by God. Um, He wasn't a super spiritual guy. He was a super shallow guy, and he had one thing on his mind. And his ego problem caused him to do some really dumb things. Uh, That Philistine woman that caught his eye, again, was a Philistine. She was a part of the enemy group that God said, I don't want you to have any interaction with them. And the reason was the Philistines would do some vile practices when they worshiped their gods, namely human sacrifice of their own children. And so God said to the Israelites, I don't want you interacting with them. I don't want you intermarrying with them. I don't want you trading with them. I don't want you interacting with them at all because I don't want you doing those vile things that they do. Now, Samson said, yeah, but I'm Samson. I'm strong. 
I mean, I can, you know, avoid anything. Like, God, your promises don't really, or your, your warnings, your cautions don't really apply to me because, you know, I mean, I'm Samson. And Samson put his hope and his physical strength to get him out of those situations. That led to a horrible divorce, painful divorce that he walked through with the woman that he did marry. He married this Philistine woman. Walked through a very painful divorce after that. And you would think that Samson would have learned from that, but no, shortly after that, he entered another very shallow relationship with another Philistine woman named Delilah. And she got him to reveal his secret of his strength, that it was in his hair. Got his hair cut, got captured, got his eyes gouged out by the enemy, and ultimately led to his death. Now, the same type of thing can happen for us. Hopefully we won't get our eyes gouged out. But the same type of thing can happen for us when we put our hope in our physical abilities or in relationships with other people. When we get so mesmerized by another relationship, we think my hope is in that person. You know, that person is gonna meet all of my needs. And God comes along and says, you're holding on to a rusty piece of metal and it's not gonna lead anywhere. You're gonna be holding that, you're gonna pull it out of the wall, and you're gonna realize this fallible relationship is gonna lead to your eternal death instead of eternal life. So a question for us is, are we putting our hope in a person more than in the creator of the universe, more than in God himself? I have a friend of mine who continues to go through this cyclical process of putting his hope in relationships with women. Gets in a relationship with a woman, and uh, from my perspective, it's a superficial relationship, and my caution and our, the friend's caution around him is, don't do it, don't do it, it's going to end poorly. And my friend, as he goes through relationship to relationship to relationship, keeps clinging to this rusty piece of metal. And it keeps ending up in his hand and wondering, like, what's going on? Like, I thought this new relationship was going to be the one. And I keep saying, his friends keep saying, but you keep pushing God aside, saying, God, like, I'll get to you later. I just want this relationship with this person to fulfill all of my deepest desires. And every time you do that, you end up with a rusty piece of metal that leads nowhere. And he's sad, remorseful, tries to put God first, and then all of a sudden, another woman catches his eye. So are you doing that in any way in your life? Are you allowing things to catch your eye other than God himself? Are you putting your hope in relationships? Are you putting your hope in the creator of the universe? So that's Samson. Next guy we're gonna learn about is Herod. So King Herod, we're gonna fast forward in time a little bit to the time of Jesus. So King Herod was the king who ruled Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. And he was kind of the king of Israel, but he was only there because the Romans put him in charge. So the Romans defeated that part of the world, and they said, listen, Herod, we're going to put you in charge of Israel, and what you have to do is make sure you pay your taxes, everybody else pays their taxes, and every, all the Israelites follow all the rules. If there's any problems here, we're going to show up, take your job, and take your life. So Herod spent all of his life in fear 
that someone was going to take his kingdom from him and ultimately take his life from him. And so what he did to compensate that was he put his hope in control and power. He tried to control everyone and everything around him. That led to him killing several of his own kids because he was jealous that maybe his kids were going to take his kingdom from him. And he killed one of his favorite wives. Isn't that crazy? Like he's got this favorite wife, this relationship with her, and he kills her because he couldn't beat this power and control thing that he had. He had to control everyone and everything. When we were in Israel, we had a team in Israel about a month ago. When we were there, our tour guide said that King Herod had that wife, had her body uh, embalmed or preserved in honey so he could always have her close by. So he was always conflicted with what he had done to her, that he couldn't beat this control issue in his life. And he caused her death And yet he was so remorseful about that, he always wanted her close by. Kind of creepy, wouldn't you say? Yeah, somebody told me after the first service, well, at least he's always had his honey close by. (laughs) He did. A little bit weird, but he, he did. Well, Herod's hope was in the wrong thing. His hope was in power and control. And some of us wrestle with the same thing. If you know somebody who has a control problem in your life, point at them right now. Just kidding. Don't do that. Like, that. That would be horrible, right? Like, not good. So don't do that. But we all know people who have control issues. If you can't think of anybody, maybe somebody's thinking of you. We all have those issues, right? And what we do when we have control issues is we like to pull people close to us so we can control them. If we can't, we like to push those people a little bit farther away from us. And then with God, we like to do kind of the, the yo-yo thing. Like sometimes we like God close because we, we like you know the, some of the benefits of being in a relationship with him. And then there are moments like we want to push him a little bit farther away because we don't really want him controlling all of our lives now, do we? He can control some parts, you know. Eternity is great, but let me be in control of my life day to day. So we do some weird things when it comes to this control issue in our lives and how we manage, how we put our faith and trust in in control more than the God who has control over everything. If we don't get to the spot we put our faith and trust, put our, our eternal hope in God, then we'll end up like Herod and how he died. So Herod knew that nobody liked him. What he decided to do was try to control people even after his death. So he told his soldiers, he said, I want you to gather up a large group of very important people in Israel. And when I die, I want you to execute them because I want there to be mourning on my death day. And I know nobody's mourning for me, but they're gonna be mourning when I die. So he had such a death grip on control He's trying to manipulate people beyond the grave. Control is just a rusty old piece of metal that's going to lead nowhere unless we put our faith and trust and hope in Jesus. Our next story is about an interesting guy who was pretty close to Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. His name was Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot. If you don't know Judah's story, he is the one who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And John chapter 12, verse 6 tells us that Judas was a thief 
who regularly stole from Jesus and the disciples. And oh yeah, Jesus made him the banker in the group. Isn't that exciting? So Jesus says, hey, Judas, why don't you take care of my wallet? You hold my wallet for me. And then, you know, when we get some money, you, you take care of that and you pay the expenses and all that. That was, that was part of his job with the disciples. And I've always wondered, like, why would Jesus do that? He knew that Judas had a problem with money. Why would he give him a bag of money? Like, why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. Here's one of the reasons why I think Jesus did that. I think Jesus wanted Judas to recognize he had a problem with money. He put his hope in the wrong thing. And conceptually, isn't it the weirdest thing ever? Here we have Judas who is right there with Jesus. And he puts his hope in 30 pieces of silver instead of the God who made all the silver. That's just mind-boggling to me. And yet that's what Judas did. And Jesus, Jesus, I think, was kind of saying, like, Judas, are you going to recognize you have a problem with money? You've put your hope in the wrong place? I think sometimes God does the same thing with us today. Sometimes God allows things in our lives that probably shouldn't be in our lives. There are times that God puts in our lives, I don't know, maybe a relationship, maybe an activity, maybe something that we think brings us pleasure. Um, any number of things can be in our lives. And we look around and go, well, sure it should be in my life. I'm like a grown adult. I can do whatever I want. And I look around, everybody else is doing it too. I mean, this is great for me. It's awesome. And I think maybe God has placed that there so we will evaluate, have I put more hope in that? than God himself. And so is there anything in your life right now that you're putting more hope in than the creator of the universe? Is there anything in your life right now that probably shouldn't be in your life right now? May not be wrong for somebody else, but maybe it's wrong for you. I've often wondered what Judas' story would have been like if Judas would have said, you know, Jesus, like I just can't handle the money anymore. I got a problem with it. Can you imagine how different Judah's story might have been? Jesus, like, I got to give you your wallet back. Give it to somebody else. I steal from you. That's a problem. My hope is in money, not you. I need to be transformed. I wonder how different Judah's story would have been. And I wonder how different our story would be if we said the same thing. If we said, you know, like this thing, this person, this activity, whatever, I just can't have it in my life right now. Maybe never. Jesus, would you take it? So is there anything in your life right now that probably shouldn't be in your life right now? Our last story is about a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a contemporary of Jesus, and he was a religious leader. He was a part of the group that Paul was a part of. We learned about that last week, the Pharisees. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and they were a very strict religious group. They were religious leaders that thought they were the only ones who could accurately interpret the Bible and apply it to everybody else's lives. And they put all their hope in their religious activities. Their hope was in those activities, not the God that they were worshiping, but in the activities themselves. And when we were in Israel, we saw people doing that all the time. 
We saw people whose whole lives were revolved around saying the right prayers at the right time, in the right way, just following the rules. And so Nicodemus was very confused when Jesus came along and said, you don't have to follow all of those extra rules that the Pharisees make up for following God. It's not about those religious activities. It's about something else, about putting your your hope in someone else. So Nicodemus comes and he has a conversation with Jesus, found in John chapter three. Verse one says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee, and after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Now, why did he come after dark? So nobody would see him. So he's like, I don't want anybody else knowing. I don't want my friends knowing that I'm gonna go see Jesus. And the cool thing about Jesus, he doesn't say, Nicodemus, like come back in the daylight. Come back at another time. He entertains Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, uh, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus cuts right to the point of the conversation. In verse three, he replies, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again. Now, in our day and age, that term, born again, for some people, means kind of a whacked out, Jesus free, kind of a weird thing. How would you answer, are you born again? Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows whenever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the spirit. Nicodemus still scratching his head. How are these things possible? I just don't get it. And I love Jesus' straightforward answer, verse 10. It says, you're a respected Jewish leader, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and what we have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one's ever gone to heaven in return. But the son of man... He's talking about himself, but the son of man, Nicodemus, but I, I've come down from heaven. And then in verse 14, he makes a connection for Nicodemus back in the Old Testament, something Nicodemus would have known about. He says, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now that reference to the bronze snake And Moses was a reference to the time the Israelites had a snake problem, a poisonous snake problem. So they had poisonous snakes in their camp and they'd be bitten by these poisonous snakes and would die because of that. So Moses went to God and said, hey, we got a problem here. How do we handle this? God said, here's what you do. You make a bronze snake, you put it on a pole, you put it in the middle of the camp. And if someone's bitten by a poisonous snake, all they have to do is look at that bronze snake. When they see that bronze snake, they will live even though they should die. And so Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, you remember that story? It was pointing to me. I'm the bronze snake. If people look to me, even though they should die, they will live. Because everybody's been bitten by the poisonous snake of sin and death. And unless they look to me, 
they will only get eternal death, not eternal life. And then in verse 16, Jesus states the most famous Bible verse ever. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, all your religious practices, they're just a rusty piece of metal in and of themselves. Your hope's in the wrong thing, Nicodemus. You're thinking your church attendance, your Bible memory, your Bible knowledge, all that stuff is gonna gain you a relationship with God himself, but it won't. You get that relationship with God himself through putting your hope in me and what I have done for you on the cross. And I think Jesus is saying the same thing today because there's still a whole bunch of people today that put their hope in religious activity. They think church attendance is gonna get God's attention and impress him. They think maybe Bible knowledge will do that, maybe giving, maybe serving, and they're trying to earn their way into relationship with God, and Jesus says all of that is a rusty piece of metal that will lead to eternal death, not eternal life. Now, should we do those things? Should we go to church? Should we serve? Should we live a Christ-like life? Yes, but it's not to earn a relationship with God. It's because of a relationship with God. If our hope is in anything but Jesus himself, we're just clinging to a rusty piece of metal. So what's your hope in? Is your hope in a relationship with a person who's ultimately going to let you down? Is your hope in your physical strength, maybe your health? Is your hope in your possessions, your accomplishments? Is your hope in your ability to control everyone and everything around you? Again, if your hope is in anything but Jesus, it's going to let you down. Now today, I'm going to end by giving you an opportunity to put your faith and trust, your eternal hope, in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And there's probably a bunch of you that have already done that. If you have, fantastic. Hold on to that hope and that confidence that you have in that relationship. But if you haven't, today can be the day. Today can be the day that you lay down the rusty piece of metal that you've been hoping in. And you can pick up a relationship with Jesus that will never disappoint. So I'm going to guide you through a short prayer in just a moment. And as I say always, this prayer is nothing magical. There's nothing magical about the words you can say this. It means nothing for you. You can say different words and it means everything for you. It's a recognition. Their hope's been in the wrong thing. And that we need our hope in Jesus. So listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10. So in Romans chapter 10, he says this. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Now we had five people put their hope in Jesus in the first service. It's really cool. And I don't know if anybody would do that in the second service. Um, maybe nobody, maybe one person, maybe more. I, mean, I don't know. Um, my job isn't to figure that out. My job, our job is to present an opportunity to put your hope 
in the right thing, and that's Jesus. So what I'm going to do is guide you through a short prayer. I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, just bow your heads, close your eyes, just kind of give us a chance to block out distractions, moment of privacy, moment to to really reflect on, on what we're talking about. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus before in your life, and if you would like to today, I encourage you to pray something like this quietly in your heart between you and God. So here we go. So God, I recognize today my hope's been in the wrong thing. And I realize my hope needs to be in you, Jesus. So today I believe that Jesus, you are God in the flesh who died so I can live. And I ask you to come into my heart Be my Lord and my Savior. And then teach me how to follow you. Now, with everybody's heads bowed and eyes still closed, I'm going to ask those of you who may have prayed that prayer for the first time, I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. I'm going to ask you to hold your hand really high and look up at me. Just look at me in the eyes, if you would. Just hold your hand really high. And then... Look at me. I see one person has done that. I see two people that have done that. I'll just take a moment so I can look around. I see three people that have done that. So hold your hand up. Four people. See, four people have done that. I'm just going to take a second so I can make sure I don't miss anybody. I see five people that have done that. Okay, so those of you who have done that, here's what I want you to know. You have made the best decision you could ever make in your life. You've just now put your hope in Jesus, the one who died so you can live. So welcome to the family of God. I encourage you to do several things. Number one, I encourage you to be baptized. We've got a baptism on Easter. That would be an amazing time for you to proclaim to the world you've put your faith in Jesus. And then I encourage you to get into one of our transformed groups. Get into one of our small group experiences that can help you grow in your new relationship with God. So let's finish out that prayer. So God's super excited for the four people, that, at least that I've seen, that have put their faith in you this morning. And Lord, we do pray for them. I pray that, that you would help them grow that new relationship and that new hope that they have. Lord, I, I do pray that they would get connected in a small group experience um, that would help them in that growth process. And Lord, surround them with people that will cheer them on. And I pray that they would know today they've put their hope in the right person, someone who will never let them down. Thanks for this moment for us to put our hope in you. In Jesus' powerful name, we pray this. Amen. So, would you celebrate with me the four people at least that put their faith in Jesus? That'll never get old to me. Creating an opportunity for someone to change their eternal vacation destination. That'll never get old to me. I hope it never gets old to us as a church either. I hope it never gets old to you. Maybe reaching out to your friends at work, your friends at school, 
creating an opportunity, maybe asking them a question, where's your hope? Is your hope in Jesus? Is your hope in something else? And I hope that we will always be a church that gives people the invitation to put their hope in Jesus. Now we're going to end this morning by singing in kind of an older hymnal, at least a song based on an, an old hymn. And as I was processing this message and you know, a song, Evan and I were talking about a song that might work at the end here. Um, the song came up for me, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The song we're going to sing is called Cornerstone. And as we sing today, what I encourage you to do is process where your hope is. Has your hope been in Jesus? Like really in Jesus. Maybe you have a relationship with him, but maybe over the past year, maybe over the past month, you've recognized, you know what, your hope's not been in Jesus. It's been in something else. So I'd encourage you to use this song as a declaration of where you're going to put your hope in today and tomorrow. And if you're still kind of deciding that, I encourage you to use this song as a prayer. Say, God, like, I want to put my hope in you. But there's some things I'm wrestling with, and I encourage you to get some answers for the questions that you might have so you can ultimately put your hope in Jesus. So would you stand with me and sing with our worship team?